Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories as we look over that white picket fence to consider the American dreams. Our unblushing theme this month is ownership. Our show intermixes curated stories with a community story slam. Own it and support our podcast by texting the code STORYPOD to 44321. I'm Artistic Director Jody Eichelberger. Here's our late night host, Beth Norton, and featured storytellers, Haley Lenhart Weiss, Katie Preston, and Ben McQueen. Here's a thought you can't lose what was never yours. It's late night stories. Hey, welcome to the third and final installment of the summer series, The American Dreams. Um, clap if you, if this is your first time at Story Story Night. Okay, awesome. Um, clap if you are a Story subscriber. Yeah! And then everybody else clap for our Story subscribers because they are keeping this thing going! Thank you so much for your regular monthly support. Um, if you're interested in becoming a story subscriber, it's a monthly donation and you get tickets to all of our shows and um, we can give you more information at the Slammer booth about that. Um, for those of you who are, it is your first time at Story Story Night, hello, my name is Beth Norton. I am the host and director and thank you. Thank you. I love to do this. Um, the program tonight is, um, per all the, the story story nights, we have three featured storytellers. So these are people who have worked with us ahead of time to craft their stories. They're gonna be a little bit longer on the theme of ownership. Um, and then intermixed in that, um, along with our musical guest, Jean, we have the opportunity for you all to tell your five minute story on the theme of ownership. Um, that is a big part of this program, so we'll have that slammer portion intermixed. Um, if you're interested in that at any time in the night, you can go over and see Darcy, hi Darcy, and um, put your name in the slammer basket. If you don't do that, this is gonna be a really, really short show, so we <laughs> encourage, and we love um, to hear your stories. They are, um, uh, the stories that you hear tonight are personal, they are true, um, and they are on theme, okay? So that's what we are, are going for here. Um, hi. <laughs> I feel that. It's like Friday energy today, isn't it? We've got some great weather for this tonight. Aren't we lucky that there's no freak weather event tonight? Seems like the norm. Um, okay, I'm gonna kick this off and uh, tell you just a little anecdote about ownership. When I come up with these themes, um, I don't typically like have stories of my own in, in mind, which then can be a problem later when I have to figure out what to say when I come up here. Um, but the American Dreams really, this theme really inspired me because um, the, the, the dreams that I chose have all been kind of elusive for me. So the first one was marriage, no marriage, um, in the traditional sense. And um, the second one, independence, made me think about a time in my life when I wasn't independent, when I was deeply dependent. Um, and um, the same with ownership. Um, I, I like to tell stories because um, 
I've been through a lot in life and what telling stories has helped me to do is to really like look at certain events and then integrate that story into my life in like a positive, healthy way and share it with a community, which has helped me metabolize some things. So if you have been to late night regularly, you know this is true. Um, and it helps me look at things I will normally not look at, AKA take ownership over things. Um, so that was true for this theme as well. I had to like be like, well, I don't like, I don't own a house, which is kind of the thing I was thinking about for this theme. So if we do have any good home ownership stories out here, I really want like a good, awful, you know, like <laughs> train wreck of a home ownership story, if that's you. Or maybe like a fantastic fantasy, you know, against all odds, triumph, dream come true home ownership story. Um, uh, for me, I don't have a, a home, I, I rent, and, um, and I have two cats. I won't say that I own them, but they more own me. Um, um, but when I was looking at this, I was thinking about like, okay, ownership, not ownership, what am I not taking ownership over? And I don't know if you guys know this, like if you guys have this, but if there's just like something in your life that you just continue to like not look at, <laughs> Um, no matter how many times life like comes at you and is like, look at me, look at me, look at me. Um, for me, that's my finances. <laughs> um, you know, like money comes in, money goes out, usually faster than it comes in, and <laughs> I just kind of deal with it. Um, and you know, I, I'm, I wanna take ownership over that tonight because I'm hoping it will change. <laughs> Um, and um, also because, well, I'll step back and say that like I am trying to work within an economic system which is uh, predatory and exploitive, <laughs> exploitative of poor people, um, but, um, but I can't control that as much as I have tried and fought and kicked and ad tried to advocate in all these ways. Um, I think going at it like that has oftentimes left me like burnt out and feeling even more depleted. Um, so what I can take ownership over are my beliefs and my feelings around money. And I think that those beliefs and feelings are why I don't look at them. Um, I kind of grew up with like a foot in each world. I had a biological family that was um, very poor and liberal and would not hesitate to like drop money on a really nice sandwich. And I lived uh, for nine years in a foster home with uh, foster parents who were um, conservative and frugal and um, who uh, did a really good job of making it look like they had money um, and also they valued experiences so they we went on vacation and they had a boat and we went fishing and things like that and what I have done in adulthood is I've taken the worst from both of those <laughs> and combined them so I make good sandwiches and I go on trips <laughs> and um, I, have, um, I have been like massively in debt um, twice in my life, once um, just like I just got out of last month. Um, thank you. Um, I, you know, don't look at what I'm spending. Um, I, I spend in ways to try to like fill this relational hole so I will like 
drop money on trips and experiences to be with people because I'm kind of coming from a relationship deficit without like those close family ties, um, without having those things in my life. So I'll often spend in those ways. And um, I just um, also like just don't pay attention. Like I thought that looking at this story and writing it down would help. And then like just last month I was like, oh my God, I have $700 on my credit card and I said I'd, have to, I'd be debt free by this show. And so I just put seven, you know, I just paid $700 and I forgot it was the end of the month. And then like I had like $64 on my account. I couldn't buy groceries. I'm like fully employed and, um, and then like a subscription to my website came through with this like one account that I never use and it was at zero. So then I got like $30 overdraft fee and I was like, oh my God, it's still happening, you know? Um, I'm still making these, like I'm still doing this, but that time when it happened, I was like, you know, I didn't like let it get to me like, oh, you're so dumb. Like you're never gonna get out of this. You're never gonna have anything. You're never gonna be able to like, you know, save enough money to like, you know, um, support yourself in case of like any of the potential financial catastrophes um, that come up. Um, I didn't have those thoughts this time. I was like, okay, I made a mistake. That was dumb. Um, I'm gonna be better next time. Um, so even just like that tiny little shift was different for me. Um, and then just yesterday, um, I utilized my my employment's emergency action plan, and I scheduled a, an appointment with a financial advisor, so <laughs> thank you, which like does feel like an emergency. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's me taking ownership over my, I'm a broke bitch, and now you all know it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got trips and sandwiches for days, thank you. <laughs> I've been to some pretty cool places. Um, um, so yeah, now things are different for me and I'm, I'm, I'm turning a corner and I'm moving forward and I, I tell you this partly in hopes that like, and I know that we don't really talk about money in our culture and I, I do kind of want that to change. I think it would really benefit the people that need it if we could have those conversations, if you know, you had more discussions about like, actually money is for investing and growing and if you're not doing that, you're probably gonna end up on the street someday. Um, and those are things that some people really need to hear. Um, so I just want to encourage those conversations and also for you to come and tell your most humiliating fact <laughs> up here so we can all feel a little bit better. Um, that's my story. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Um, we're going to move into your first featured storyteller of the night. Um, she's a dear friend, a comedian, a business owner, um, and this is not her first time to Story Story Night. She actually hosted last year um, Story Story Late Night. So please join me in welcoming Haley Lenhart Weiss. Beth Norton, everybody, keep it going for her. Hello, hi, my name is Haley Lenhart Weiss. Long name, amazing results, you'll see. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I kind of doubted that myself a little bit. As Beth mentioned, I am a business owner. I, uh, I didn't want to be a business owner, I wanted to be an actress. <laughs> but turns out you need a side gig to do that as well, yes. 
Uh, the American dream was interesting to me, the topic. I was like, oh yeah, marriage, independence, ownership. I was like, not married, like Beth. We run the packs. <laughs> <laughs> not very independent, got a lot of roommates, you know. <laughs> but I do own a business, so winning. Uh, it was kind of interesting, I did, I, I, mostly for the American dream, it, it was described to me as like, yeah, having kids, getting married, doing all that, being a mom, and I was like, oh my God, I don't wanna be a mom. I don't wanna be responsible for living beings, no thank you. Also, I love the environment, why would I do that to the earth? So I decided to be a business owner which if you might be a business owner, might know that there's a lot of people that you're responsible for when you inflict yourself upon them. <laughs> but I thought, I'm gonna be a cutesy business owner, a production company. Hi, I'm Blue City Comedy. I produce funny comedy shows and that's it. Yeah. It's <laughs> not how it went down. I did, I started producing comedy shows, and I was so thankful I didn't have rent. <laughs> I didn't own a theater, I didn't own like an actual business that you had to pay rent for, which was a blessing, is why I'm still here today with my company. But I really went for it, I was like all in, I was like, I'm gonna produce the heck out of things because I know how to do it. I'm a theater major, I learned how etiquette is and do, do stuff right, I did it. Um, I made people feel good and welcomed and I had fun shows like the comic of the month. And yes, I didn't pay comics because <laughs> I paid the winner, okay guys? But four of them went unpaid <laughs> and they let me know about it. They let me know how terrible a person I was for making them compete and giving them video and headshots and portfolios that they could go out of Boise, Idaho and do something with. <laughs> Monster. Um, I tried my very best to make everyone feel important and cool and exciting and I started this company because I was like, I am gonna support artists working their craft, dang it, because that's what I wanted when I got out of school. I just wanted to be an artist. I just wanted to go and do it and not have to think about a real job, you know? And so I did it for a few years and I was like, this is perfect, it's gonna work out. <laughs> I'm an actress and a business owner. I don't have health insurance, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> And I did it, I did it for a little while, and then guess what, the pandemic hit, oof, you know how it is. You guys lived through it, obviously. <laughs> Not everyone did. <laughs> and actually, the pandemic really hurt me because I did have a very big loss. I lost my sister, and she was a big supporter of Blue City Comedy. She came out to all the shows, she brought all of her friends, so I was like, look, I'm. I'm, I'm advertising this appropriately, it's a full house. I was like, no, it's all her friends. <laughs> so I was like, really, when she left, I, I almost thought about stopping comedy completely. I didn't see the purpose. I was like, I'm not funny anymore. If I can't perform, then who gives a crap about these guys? <laughs> but turns out I did. I, I still cared. And so I went forth and I kept producing and I kept, designing more shows and working with other venues and growing, actually. Um, I wasn't paying my graphic designer anything. <laughs> me. I wasn't paying my booker anything. Me. But I was like, I can still do this. This is a perfect business model. And it worked for a little while. And it was really thriving and great. It just wasn't sustainable. So 
I decided that if I wanted to have a sustainable company, I needed to get myself a real job. And I did. Uh, man, a government job. You wouldn't even, like, with this? Yeah, they accept me now. <laughs> That's crazy. They're like, you might be a little queer. We can't. It's okay. Come on in. <laughs> That's what they do. So I got hired by Valley Regional Transit, the bus system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you hate it, I am taking complaints after the show. <laughs> Our new motto is, we're getting there, okay? <laughs> Slowly. If you'd like to fund us, let me know. <laughs> Turns out they have the same issue as comedy does. <laughs> Nobody wants to like spend money for it because they're like, oh, there's a bunch of drug addicts and stuff. <laughs> Sorry, I like me an underdog. What can I say? <laughs> so I really went into this business and it was like finally Blue City was actually thriving because I wasn't dependent on it at all and I could pay people what they were worth. Was my business good? No, it was just a funnel of money, <laughs> but it made me feel like I was doing something. And I really went forth and I chased the dream again. And I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I've got grit, I'm American. Um, <laughs> and I was thriving and in this job. And then I experienced another terrible loss. Um, my brother-in-law, Ben. And I lost all of my energy and I lost all of it. And I kind of was like running, and when you run and you lose your energy, you kind of scrape your face against the whole pavement. It's very dangerous. It's almost like riding a bike in Idaho. Um, or any kind of pedestrian kind of thing. Sorry, I know. <laughs> but I lost my energy, and since I didn't pay a graphic designer, and since I didn't pay a booker, I was all these things. I had also lost all of those people who worked for me because I couldn't do it anymore. And so it kind of just kind of started falling. And I felt really bad and really sad about it. So I decided that the only thing I could do was kind of hand things off. So I handed it off to the venue that ran it, Mad Swede, and God bless them. Um, <laughs> they're dealing with comedians, and seriously, God bless them. <laughs> they took that, they're running open mics, which is a beautiful art form that is scary. Um, they're still putting on shows and working with fellow producers. And I changed from a funnel of money to a funnel of information because I was like, I'm still here. I'm still useful. And I put all the information on my website about open mics and where to find people and connect them because that was all I could absolutely do at the moment. And I kind of felt like a failure with my business. I was like, gosh, I was here and now I'm here. And I realized I'm not a failure because America likes to think that you can grow really big and fast, but if you know, if you grow like that, you're unsustainable. You'll blow over in the wind or you'll, I don't know, just not be around for the next year. And so I decided to soak up the water in my roots a little bit, kind of a sagebrush. Let's bring it back to Idaho, shall we? Sagebrush. I was watering everyone around me, but I'm going to water myself a little bit, which was nice because I could have dissolved my company, Blue City Comedy, get rid of it, let it be, let it be gone. But I'm hoping that one day I'll be funny again and one day I'll have joy to produce the shows that piss people off. Because <laughs> if it's not pissing you off, I'm not making you pay attention enough. Uh, is my motto. <laughs> my hope with Blue City Comedy is the fact is that it can grow into something that I make it and that when I do grow it will be sustainable because I 
now I know how to write grants from my new day job. <laughs> Thank you. I know how to ask for sponsorship money. <laughs> I'm going to ask y'all. <laughs> but also, I know how to sell the right merch, like reusable uh, sandwich bags. Perfect. I don't feel bad about just another t-shirt in the world. I'm going to make money other ways. And I kind of feel excited about that because it's like, I'm not limited in those ways. And uh, I think a lot of Americans are with me with wanting a new American dream. They don't necessarily want to own a home. They want an affordable place to rest their head. They want somewhere that they can go when they're sick and not pay millions of dollars for. They want a place to get to and from places. And if you have a car, you might know. You can do it until it breaks down. Do you have a family member to borrow the next car? A lot of people don't. And getting to and from was a big thing. And so when I got to focus my energy on VRT, and even though it gets you there slow, <laughs> we will get you there. And I just urge you to never be scared to reroute your life a little bit. <laughs> reroute your life and find a sustainable way, because that, I believe, should be the new American dream. Haley, is that a new slogan for VRT, Reroute Your Life? It should be. I'm with Haley, like, um, my American dream is to not have to own a fucking car. <laughs> yeah, does anybody else have that dream? Is that? Okay, so like six of us. You guys, that's the problem, you guys. Um, Maybe this would be a good time to just introduce the fact that Story Story Night has t-shirts. <laughs> We're really prepared for a big launch this time and Haley really set it up well, so. We're gonna talk more about the t-shirts later. Um, what's that? No sandwich bags yet, but let's put a pin in that board, wherever you are. Um, and then I just wanna circle back. I. I'm single, and if there are any other single people in the house, I just want to say that my credit score is 792. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right, can we do our first slammer of the evening? Darcy, can we get the slammer basket? Y'all. Do we have any tickets in there? More than one? Okay. Yes. I can't wait to hear. Okay. Jody! <laughs> ah, shit. We didn't think of resealable sandwich bags. Oh my god. Whoa, I'm a slammer. This hasn't happened in a long time. Oh my god. Whoa! Uh, I uh, came to Boise from New York, where I lived for almost a decade, but it was never my dream to live in New York. Uh, it happened, I went there, I had an interesting time. Uh, I actually made two trips there. The first time I was renting, and then I had a break, and I came back, and then I was like, I'm gonna go back to New York, but this time I think I wanna own a place. 
which didn't sound like something people did in New York. Um, but I was like, I'm going to try it. You know, I've got some TV money. I'm going to try to get a place. Uh, Manhattan seemed totally unrealistic. It wasn't, I wasn't in like, uh, the only show I can think of right now for some reason is 90210. <laughs> that makes absolutely no sense. <clears throat> but I wasn't in 90210. <laughs> you know, 20 years ago, it was the 80s, right? Uh, so, so I left Manhattan and I thought, I like riding trains. And it'll be good for me psychologically to ride a train. Give me some distance between the hustle of the city. So I got on a train to Yonkers, which <laughs> it wasn't that many stops. Once you leave Grand Central Station on the express, it's only like three or four stops. So we, uh, my husband and I set up an appointment with a real estate agent in Yonkers. And uh, apparently we arrived a little early. Uh, she's like, oh, you want to own a place in Yonkers? And we're like, yeah. She's like, well, I set up some appointments for you, uh, but uh, you're a little early. So what I will do is take you on a little tour. And I was like, wow, this is full service. I didn't know you go to Yonkers. You get a real estate. Because the realtors in New York were like, you know, you couldn't even get, a pl get in to see the place. So this felt like, hey, this Yonkers was a good idea. So she kind of looks us over and is like, okay, let's take a tour of Yonkers. And um, we pass, actually, this walled space reminds me so much <laughs> of this beautiful, no, this is good. It reminds me of this beautiful park that there was uh, not too far from the train station. And it was large, a huge walled park. And I said, oh, wow, this, this looks like a great place to do like Shakespeare in the park. And the realtor was like, mm, yeah. Um, what it's really, see these steps right here? This is where the son of Sam killed animals. I was like, the son of Sam? You mean Summer of Sam, like that movie? The guy that shot people in nightclubs? Yeah, him, he lived in Yonkers. He had a, an apartment here um, with a beautiful large windows that looked out on the Hudson Bay like a postcard view with the Palisades in the distance. And apparently, he did live in Yonkers, and apparently he took the train, just like my idea. <laughs> just commute. Um, and he uh, had like a mattress on the floor in his apartment when they you know, discovered it later, just a, like a plain mattress on the floor, no furniture, big window. So that was the first stop on our tour. And then we went back to the train station, and they've done a lot of development there. It looked really nice. I'm like, yeah, I could. This feels kind of low-key. I could probably handle this. And she's like, yeah, you know, my friends and I, we used to love coming here and making fun of the hookers. Um, but then one day, uh, one of my friend's dad was picking one up. And we're... I'm like, are you trying to sell us a place? <laughs> so finally, it was time to look at some places. We go into the first apartment, and I, and I went in, and I was like, oh, eh, I don't know. This is really dark. And, you know, she was like, yeah, it's really dark. Yeah, it's really dark. Okay, is there anything you want to show us in this space? No, we should probably move on. All right. 
She goes, I've got this great apartment to show you. Um, so we go downtown, just a few blocks away from the train station, and we walk into this apartment, and it, the, the windows are huge. And it, I swear to God, it had a beautiful view. It was a postcard view of the Hudson River. Big windows, but there was also a mattress laying on the floor, a sleeping bag on it, like a bag of half-eaten crisps on the ground. It looked like somebody was crashing there. Plus, the whole Summer Sam vibe was still feeling real strong. Um, but we're like doing our due diligence. We're like, yeah, I actually really like this apartment. It's like a bedroom, large living room, these crazy like windows looking out on that amazing view. This is incredible. But I was like, I need to see where the laundry facilities are, the common areas. So we go down to the basement and um, there's a woman doing her laundry and the real estate agent says, it's safe here, right? And the woman like, has her laundry and she's like, no. <laughs> And this time the real estate agent says, oh, she doesn't speak English. <laughs> All right. She's like, I've got, I'm like, I don't think this is the right building for us. Uh, she's like, I got one more place to show you. I had to save it for last because of this woman's schedule. Um, she is so beautiful. You're gonna, this woman is so beautiful. But we had to wait to go see her apartment because she works nights. So we go to the apartment and we're going up the elevator and she keeps saying, oh my God, this woman, you're not gonna believe it when you see her. She is so gorgeous. Beautiful, beautiful woman. But yeah, she might just be waking up because you know she works all night. So we're like, is this a prostitute? <laughs> we go into the apartment. The drapes are all closed. It's really dark. The woman is kind of wearing a, like a long kimono-esque dress, long, flowing. She was very pretty. Um, obviously, I wasn't that interested in that aspect of the apartment. Um, I didn't assume that she came with it, but... Um, and then the realtor ignored us completely and just talked to her friend there in the apartment, and we kind of wandered and was like, I'm not sure what's going on, but I don't... I kind of am not thinking that we're going to own an apartment in, in Yonkers. I think maybe we're not gonna... It's not gonna happen, and... And reflecting on that, I realized that for me, a part of ownership is not just being able to buy the thing, but it seemed like this realtor at least took a look at the two of us and decided this was not the kind of people she wanted to have in her area. Uh, and so ownership was not just the ability to buy something and take possession of it, but for me, it's also having the community around <laughs> like that I own it as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thank you, Jody. Rocking that T-shirt. It's like you planned your outfit. It does like the color scheme does really match. And we're glad that you didn't end up in Yonkers, Jody. Um, for those of you who don't know, Jody's been the producing artistic director of Story Story Night, flagship season four, and late night for it was like seven, nine years, seven years. Nice. Let's go seven tonight. <laughs> Since the 80s. Um. <laughs> uh, 
All right, we are going to do um, one more featured storyteller before we take a break. And I am um, so stoked that we got this person for you. Um, he is a staple in the community, um, very important um, person, known as Kava Ben, um, or more formally, Ben McQueen. Hello. I'm very happy to hear that I'm important. I'll make sure to call my mom and let her know. Um, there are a lot more smiles in this crowd than the last time I was in jail. Um, and less violence in this crowd, which is cool. Um, I am Ben McQueen. I own Karuna Kava Bar and Karuna Kava Beverage Company. Has anybody been to Karuna Kava Bar? Hey, way to go. Good marketing opportunity for those of you that haven't been, okay? Listen up. Um, from a very young age, I remember uh, the impact that addiction had on me personally. Um, uh, I spent quite a bit of time away from my father, who was an alcoholic, and uh, I just never really could understand how a beverage could own someone else. Um, in such a way that they would trade their own children for it um, until I found out how that happens. Um, I remember my first drink, but I'll say this is probably not when I started drinking in earnest. We'll get to that soon. Uh, but when I was eight years old, um, I had seen my father make screwdrivers a million times. And so... Uh, I made myself a screwdriver and went up into my room and I experienced bliss for the first time. I uh, turned on the World Wrestling Federation. <laughs> uh, it was the big show and uh, The Rock, if I remember correctly, and I drank about a quarter of that screwdriver and spent the next 45 minutes just choke slamming invisible people off the top bunk of my bunk bed. <laughs> Um, and no one ever found out, you know, I got away with it and, um, that feeling of getting away with it, uh, would be a big part of my drinking story. Um, when I really started getting wild, uh, was around, uh, 14 years old. My father actually passed away when I was 12 and um, not too soon after that, I started to realize that I could use drugs and alcohol to manage the way that I feel so that I wouldn't have to own my own pain and my own emotions. Um, I could sink into a bottle or a joint or a beer and escape the hurt and um, not have to own it. And so when I was 14, uh, me and some friends went and started drinking uh, before a big football game. And we were playing beer pong with tequila, which is really dumb. <laughs> Especially if you're really bad at beer pong, <laughs> which I was. Um, and so I remember 
uh, me and my friends getting very, very drunk and walking to the football game, very big football game. It's at the college stadium. The news crews are there. They're spinning. I don't know if they had old-timey cameras or new ones. Um, and I remember looking at my friend and saying, Andrew, do I look fucked up? And he was like, yeah. Yeah, you look pretty bad right now. Um, and we were at the top of the stadium. And right about that moment, I got the spins. Anybody had the spins in here? It's a precursor to puking. Um, and so I kind of had this uh, visceral reaction to myself that I knew I was going to vomit. And as I'm sprinting down the stairs to the stadium, uh, I lean over a railing and I vomit. And on the other side of that railing is my principal. And so this is one in a beginning of public, embarrassing, degrading moments. And my father had actually worked for the school board. He was a financial advisor. And when they corralled me over <laughs> to where they corralled me, um, I was getting sick into a trash can. And he walked out, the superintendent walks over to me and he says, are you Mark McQueen's son? And I kind of mumbled that I was and he said, well, this makes sense. Because everyone had known that he was a drunk. And so, cut to me being admitted to my choice college, IU Bloomington, one of the number one party schools in the United States. Yeah, go Hoosiers. Um, <laughs> I got kicked out of most bars on Kirkwood. <laughs> True story. I worked at two of them for about three days each. Um, and uh, I was just so excited at this prospect of going to college and um, having a great time. And I had a, a good month of college before the shit hit the fan. I started racking up charges like it was my job. Um, transportation of alcohol, minor consumption of alcohol, maintaining a common nuisance, uh, minor possession of alcohol, uh, transportation of alcohol under the age of 21. And then, and meanwhile, this is still in my mind kind of fun, kind of having a good time. <laughs> you know, I, I got into a fraternity. I got kicked out of that fraternity for drinking, of all things, which is kind of crazy because that's like a drinking club. You're telling me I won the game? You kicked me out? That's cheating. This is Las Vegas or something. Um, and, uh, but when I was 20, I got a DUI. And not to bring the level down too much, but uh, DUI is pretty serious. Um, it's not funny. This was when it stopped being fun. This is when I realized that I could not stop drinking if I wanted to. And I had to. I had to blow into a breathalyzer. And I failed the breathalyzer. I thought I timed it all out right. I gave myself nine hours, had six drinks, should have worked out. But no, um, that's not really how alcoholism works. Um, you can't rig the system like that. So I just kept getting in trouble, getting in trouble. And um, so I went to rehab. I kind of abandoned the college pursuit, flew down to Florida to live with my mom for half a second, and went to rehab. And for the first time, I was comfortably and having a good time while sober. Um, granted, behind walls, not too dissimilar from this. Um, and uh, for 43 days, I didn't have any drinks or drugs, and I felt great, and I was just ready to go get it in the world. 
And so um, I decided after rehab to move to Colorado because my snowboarding buddy uh, had invited me to live on his floor in Colorado. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Um, well, I show up in Colorado, and I actually didn't even make it to Colorado before getting blackout drunk. I just, at the airport, airports for alcoholics are notoriously tough spots. Um, and so on the way to Colorado, I lost my sobriety and showed up in a place where I knew no one, had very little money, especially after the drink tickets on the airplane. Um, and uh, turns out I was moving in with a heroin addict who was pretty adept at stealing my money. <laughs> um, and so uh, pretty soon I found myself homeless in Colorado Springs. Um, and with no money or resources or anywhere to go. And these great people invited me to live in a sober living house. And uh, I shared a room with another grown adult man that was much older than me. Um, I had no privacy. Um, but I remember this feeling of gratitude when I got to sit in that hot shower, you know, for like, you know, 15 minutes. Because when you don't have anything at all, just the smallest little comfort can be super, super meaningful. Um, and I just remember crying in that shower and realizing that they had food for me in the fridge and there was no booze in the house. And it was like this moment of, you know, just gratitude. Um, and I don't think I'd really experienced gratitude in an extremely long time. Um, and so while I was living at that sober living house, uh, I got introduced to kava. Is anyone familiar with kava? Yeah. Also known as kava kava or yangona or ava. Um, uh, kava is actually the Tongan word for bitter. Um, but some guys in the house were drinking this uh, earthy drug mud. Um, you know, that's what I thought at the time. It was like a real, real intense, strong tea um, that kind of makes you feel relaxed and happy and cheerful and chatty and more socially comfortable. And so um, at a time when I was real close to kind of relapsing, uh, I tried this kava stuff instead. And I had a, a kind of a spiritual moment where I felt comfortable and stress-free and socially engaged, um, but very clear-headed and mindful. And I wasn't fucked up. I wasn't peeing my pants in front of strangers. Um, you know, I wasn't um, lying or stealing or, you know, my moral compass hadn't gotten whacked off track. And uh, I just loved it. Um, and from that point on, I wanted to open a Kava bar. I wanted to create a space where people could hang out and socialize and go on a first date and not have booze be a part of the equation. Um, and so I moved to Boise from Colorado um, to start a Kava bar because... It's Boise. <laughs> There's no kava bars here, and there was a ski hill, so that's close enough for me. Um, and so I uh, started at a farmer's market, um, just sharing kava with, with people where we could. You know, we just had a tent in the beginning. That's all, it ha that's all we had, a tent and a table. Um, and that kind of just spiraled. I just kept going at it, and I kept going at it, and... Um, uh, I got to see people benefit from kava in the way that I did. Um, you know, I got to watch uh, people benefit from kava in ways that I did not know were possible. I did not know that cancer patients use kava as pain relief. I didn't know that. FDA doesn't want me to say that, so if they're here, 
I didn't say that. Um, but, you know, uh, all sorts of issues like that. And so um, at our Kava Bar that we opened in 2002, um, this whole community of non-drinkers and attempted non-drinkers and people that are trying to find a healthier way to live, um, they all found a home there. And because of that, I have also found a home there. I have a place where I can go, where... Uh, my children can go. I have two children now <laughs> um, and, uh, and two businesses and a golden retriever and a beautiful wife. And um, of all my material possessions that I own, the people in my life that share their life with me are the most precious. So thank you. I know, Ben, you, you made this mistake in our stories long. You said you opened the Kava Bar in 2002. <laughs> he meant 2022, you guys. Um, and yeah, if you haven't been out to the Kava space, I encourage you to check it out. It's a really, really lovely, peaceful, um, alcohol-free space. And they have teas and coffees. It's in Garden City near the racetrack. Um, yeah, go ahead and check it out. And thank you so much, Ben, for telling your story. Can we give him one more round of applause? Because... Late night's theme is uh, positively shameless and really no story says it like getting up here and, and telling everybody like every time you fell flat on your face in the midst of substance abuse. So that's an incredible journey. If anybody knows anybody or has lost anybody to substance abuse, I think the gratitude to um, hear about somebody who's come through that and now has made it their life mission to help other people is um, just incredibly special. So thank you, Ben. Um, all right, and I think, do you still want to talk about? Yeah, okay, so we're going to bring up our board president, Ruth Swartz. She's going to tell us about these t-shirts. <laughs> Rocking the peach. Thank you, Ruth. Our board president, you guys, Ruth. You might not need a damn t-shirt, but don't you want one? I mean, really? Or look at it this way. This is your donation to Story Story Night. For 25 bucks, you can donate to Story Story Night, and you'll get a t-shirt in the color you want and in the size you want. And you're gonna do it without costing us any money. So Darcy is supposed to be over there at the Slammer booth. Oh, there she is in the back. She's going, she's on her way. And if you would like to buy one tonight or order one tonight, in the case may be, we're gonna bring it to the Slammer of the Year next month and deliver it to you. That's how it's gonna work. These are all made to order. So we hope that you, uh, you know, need another damn shirt. <laughs> that's it, I think that's it. Yeah. Okay, I know Ruth said you could get them in the color you want, but there's actually only two options. It's peach or dusk, because we were feeling sunsetty. Yeah, it's nice. It, um, and then, okay, so Ruth mentioned Slammer of the Year. Um, clap if you know, oh, and we have black. Great. Nobody's gonna clap for that because it's just a color. It's just the color of a t-shirt. It's fine. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so if you don't know what Slammer of the Year is, um, every year between our, our uh, flagship season and our late night season, we take the five, uh, five Slammers, 
Um, and we have two teams and they battle it out um, and we award one slammer of the year. So we are selecting the best slams from flagship season and the best slams from late night. I'm gonna coach the late night team. Jody's gonna coach the flagship team. The theme is Pirates of the Treasure Valley. There's gonna be parrots and boats and um, like walk in the plank and um, come and check it out. It's on September 26th and you can buy a t-shirt and um, if you buy a black t-shirt, that's in support of late night. And if you buy one of the other cute colors, that's gonna be in support of the Royal Army, AKA Jody's team. Okay, so buy a black t-shirt and come out to Slammer of the Year. Um, and if, with that, we're gonna take a short intermission, 10 to 15 minutes, feel free to use the bathroom and grab a drink from the bar and we will see you back here in a little bit. All right, Steven. Hey, Steven. I just want to point out that this sunset matches my shoes. <laughs> Thank you. All right, intermission is winding down. The lights have come on, and this is the time in our program when we get to introduce and focus on Ben, <laughs> Jessica. Okay. <laughs> Why are people coming to Boise? It's like, we can hear it. <laughs> oh, you guys, I'm so tired. <laughs> um, Jean, is that a Rice Krispie treat perched on the edge of your... It is. <laughs> I, I, it's not easy to eat and sing at the same time, <laughs> yeah. discovered, yeah. If you can do it. Oh, yeah, is that a challenge? That'd be awesome. Is that a challenge? Yeah. <laughs> so we have something a little special for you guys tonight. Um, this is the part in the program when we focus on our musical guest. And um, Jean has a featured original song to sing for you guys. Um, and she has a little story about the song. So she's going to share that with you now. So Jean. Thank you, guys. So I was here for last month's independent show. Is anybody here? Yeah, so good. But I stayed after and I talked to Jody and Beth about tonight's show, which you know the theme is ownership. And Beth asked me how I was feeling about this feature song, featured song, and I thought maybe I'd run some ideas by her. So I thought maybe I'd do uh, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. Well, you know, about owning a fast car and owning the decisions you make and the choices. Um, and then I thought maybe I'd do Bon Jovi's It's My Life. But then Beth just looked at me and said, don't you have songs of your own? And I said, that's scary. And um, anyway, on my way home, I thought about it. And my first thought was, why would anybody want to hear my story? But then I thought, well, this is story, story night. You guys are here. That's why we're here, right? <clears throat> we want to hear each other's stories. So here we go. A couple years back, I had an experience that, that turned my whole world upside down. And I wasn't sure how the world worked anymore and how I fit in it. And, you know, where I was once sure-footed, it felt like 
like that loose gravel that's all over the Boise bench, right? The depot bench right now, and I had like the skinniest bike tires. Um, but what I knew, um, well, I knew that this experience was gonna change me and I would be different, but I didn't know if I'd be better or worse. Um, and at one point it got so bad that I wasn't sure that I was gonna recover. Um, but time passed and with the help of some supportive friends, some of you guys are here now, so thank you. Um, and some talk therapy. <laughs> serious talk therapy that helped me process some grief. Um, and music, I started to feel like I would be okay. Um, so the song I'm about to play for you, I played, I wrote it like a year ago, and um, I played it out a handful of times. And one time when I played it out, uh, somebody after the show gave me her contact information. And when I reached out to her, she asked if I could write out the chorus, sign it, so she could um, give it to her husband for their anniversary. Um, yeah, and so that's the cool thing about songs, like it, they kind of take the life of their own once you put them out there. Um, and then I've had the privilege of working with the Open Arms Dance Project, and they created a dance around the song, and it's a duet between a mother and a son. Um, I have a little brother who I consider one of my best friends, and somebody once asked me if I wrote the song to him, but I didn't. And somebody once asked me if I wrote the song for my daughter, but I don't have any kids, so the answer to that is no. And whenever somebody has asked me, like, what is that song, or who did you so write that song for? I'm a little slippery about it, you know, I just like kind of shrug my shoulders or say I don't know, which can be the truth for songs. Sometimes you just don't know where they come from. But the truth is, I wrote this song to and for me, so. Um, and it's, thank you, it's about, Loving, trusting, and owning the person you are, or the person I am, and the person I'm becoming. This is called My North Star. I would break the dark to be next to you Mend your broken heart with tape and glue Please hear my call when I say your name I know you're feeling small, I know you're not the same I'll hold you tight, this new version of you Stand in the light with your heartache It's not too late, not only stains will remain. Fall in my arms, I'll do no harm. You're safe with me, I love you tenderly. I'll hold you tight, this new version of you. With your heartache in view 
Thanks for listening. Thank you, Jean. What a treat. Thank you for being so brave and so vulnerable with us and our audience. Your trust means a lot. And thanks for sharing what that meant to you because when you said it, I really felt it. And uh, um, yeah, like being the parent to the child inside sometimes is what you need. And that's what I got from that. So thank you. Um, I'm so glad I was like, mm, tell your story. <laughs> I feel like this is a good time to do that to you guys. You tell your story. Um, we are like, we always, I'm so happy because we have so many tickets in the slammer basket tonight. Um, and we're going we're gonna to tell, an, uh, choose another slammer here in a second. Um, and you can start bringing them up, Darcy. Um, but we are, I'm, I'm always like, feel like I'm scraping the bottom of my personal barrel for people to tell, come and be featured storytellers. And like, this is a community. I know you guys have stories inside of you. So we have a new season of Late Night coming up. It's, uh, it's called The Sweet Season. Um, and we'll announce those themes. But if you're interested in being a featured storyteller, we have some yellow tickets over there. Please grab one. It has information on that. Um, about becoming that, and we can um, work with you on this process, and it's really rewarding. Okay. <laughs> uh, and please welcome to the stage Tim Blonsky. Tim, a tall man. He's tall. He's wearing a hat. Walking down to the hills. <laughs> All right, so, okay, good. I'm, uh, I can be um, awkward with the microphone. Um, so, I, I feel like my story is um, maybe slightly trivial compared to some of the other stories that have been told tonight, but it's something that is important to me. So, um, g given that over the last 18 months I got divorced um, on my own for the first time in almost a decade, it was really kind of a, a period of self-discovery for who, who I am as a person and, um, you, know, just, you know, just figuring things out for, for the first time. Uh, because, you know, for better or worse, when you're in a marriage, um, you're, you're sort of like with someone else and you're kind of like matched with that person. So when you separate from that person, you really need to figure out who you are as a person. And that also pertains, at least for me, into my, my career and what, what I wanted to like, figure out what I wanted to do for the next steps in that part of my life, which for better or worse, that's a big part of anyone's life because you're working eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, that's a big part of your life. Um, so 
when I kind of like meshed that into the idea of ownership, um, I think, you know, when you talk about the American dream, you talk about the idea that you work eight hours a day for, you know, five days a week for 30 years or 35 years, and that just becomes a big part of you. Um, and it, that, that's the expectation. And I had come to realize that after 15 years of, of the, the particular career that I was in, that it was time for me to take ownership and take a step out and be an entrepreneur and really take a step and take a risk in taking that expertise that I have and see if I can um, positively affect people on a national scale. So in October, September, October of last year, I set up my LLC, I set up my website and all that stuff. And about two months ago, I actually took the step and left my job and I am doing this full time. So, thank you, thank you. Um, so, you know, I don't want to advertise my business, that's not a place for that, but um, I'm taking that step out um, and we'll see what happens. And the funny thing about it is, is I'm not losing any sleep. Like I should be, like I think I should be like really stressed, but I'm not. Um, so I, I took ownership of my career and I, I'm in a place where like if it doesn't work out, it's going to work out. But if it doesn't work out, at least I took the step. I took that ownership and wish me luck in, in those next steps. So, thank you. I don't know, Tim. I think this is a place to advertise your business. Just tell us what it is. Yeah, see, that's rad. That's rad. Dis like, so we catch that on the podcast. That was workforce development. Workforce development. Nobody listens to the podcast, but workforce development and bringing disability rights into that. And the name of the company is? Typically, Tim? Timothy James. Timothy James Consulting. Net. Okay, cool. We got it. I was like, you can't make a, like, I'm up here trying to get a date, Tim. Um, you, can, you can advertise your business. Okay. I chose this dress for a reason. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, cool. Well, uh, your next featured storyteller, Story Story, has been courting for a really long time. And um, speaking of dates, and we're so glad that we have landed her here tonight. Um, excited to hear her story. Please welcome Katie Preston. <laughs> I sat really close, so you didn't have to play me on for very long. <laughs> Hi. Um, so I finally connected to the topic of ownership and the American dream because I feel like they've both been really interesting topics in my life over the past couple of years. Uh, about five years ago, I realized that I'd been really unhappy for a really long time, and I wanted to look at what I could do about it. Um, so I started to look at my life, and on paper, it looked like I was living the goddamn American dream. I had a beautiful house 
in one of the fastest growing cities in the country. I had an amazing partner. I had a really fun job and also the side career that was going really well in this industry that I was always told was pretty unattainable. So I kind of started wondering what the problem was and wanted to take a look at whose dream it was I was living and why I was so dedicated to achieving it because it clearly wasn't mine. So I started to kind of deconstruct each of these pieces. Uh, I started with the house. Um, my home was beautiful, I loved it. It was right next to the Boise foothills so I could go running whenever I wanted to. Um, I looked in the backyard and saw the cement patio that we had poured a month after we moved in and the hot tub that was sitting there. And I remembered the two of us standing in the snow with our two dogs and a half-eaten dead squirrel that was frozen to the ground because it was in the middle of December as they were craning the hot tub over our house because there was no room for clearance on either side of it. Um, the house was full of memories. But I also realized that um, a part of me felt really weighed down and trapped by owning it. I was craving adventure past like running by a coyote in the foothills or hearing the sirens scream down Bogus Basin Road when the weather was bad. Uh, I just kept having this weird feeling that I wanted to be in this tiny little space um, with no ties to anything and just surrounded by possibility. So the next thing I looked at was my relationship. Again, it was full of love and beauty and memories like standing in the snow with our two dogs and a dead squirrel watching a hot tub dangle over our house. Um, but I also really had to look at the fact that there was some resentment there. I remember when we got together, our plan was to leave the state within the year. And now it was 11 years later, and we were sitting here in this house that we owned together in the city where we met. And I felt like I had totally abandoned some really important parts of me that thrived on spontaneity and being able to just chase whatever excited me in the next moment. And I also really had to own the part of myself that was blaming my partner for a lot of things that were kind of my fault too. I signed my name on the house paperwork. I woke up every morning and didn't do a damn thing to change what I was doing with my life. And I was the one who was waiting for somebody else to want things that they'd never given Indian any indication that they wanted out of life for me to give myself permission to move forward with mine. So that was really cool to admit to myself. Um, then I decided to look at this little side career I had. I'd been acting debatably professionally for like 20 years, and I love it. But I also couldn't figure out why it wasn't bringing me joy anymore. And I think, without a clinical diagnosis, that I had kind of lost some of my identity in that too. Um, I think one of the most powerful concepts in the world is the idea that anything that I can see in or say about anybody else is just a massive reflection of something going on within me. And so I kind of used that and looked at the fact that I was really frustrated, for lack of a better word, at feeling like all the people in my life only valued me or had any interest in me because of whatever I was doing with that part of who I was. And so I kind of turned that on myself and realized, fuck, I had forgotten to find any value for myself outside of that and had forgotten to cultivate anything in myself outside of that. And had gotten to a point where I really believed that I had no value outside of whatever I was doing in that field. And so 
I decided I really wanted to pull back and take a break from that too, to give myself space to kind of build the life I wanted and then figure out how acting would fit into that if it did, instead of me trying to build who I was around it. Uh, so I realized I needed to make some changes. And I think that change is scary because it's associated with loss. And especially as we get to be adults, we've spent a lifetime, 42 years, of collecting relationships and identities and boxes of comic books and basketball cards because I was raised with three boys. And even as a young girl, I was apparently building my interests around other people. So I looked at all this and I was still too scared of all the change I saw coming, or loss more than the change, to do anything, so I didn't. And a few months later, my body broke down in a way that I did not know was humanly possible. It's late night. I got an anal fissure, which, <laughs> ah, which feels like, <laughs> I'm laughing now, <laughs> which feels like somebody clawing their way out of your body with a chef's knife every time you sit down. Are you still laughing? No. <laughs> mm. Anyway, I thought I was going to die. Um, but I, en I ended up having a conversation with a really good friend of mine. And we both kind of believe that our bodies are really intertwined into what's going on emotionally and energetically with us. And throughout that conversation, I really came into alignment with the idea that my body was screaming at me to digest and process and fucking release something, and I was just fighting it. And I accepted this and knew it and believed it and still continued to do nothing and just kind of passive-aggressively exist in the life that I'd been living. Um, and then I decided to book a trip to Guatemala, which, looking back, was kind of me just begging the universe to throw everything on its ass and change it for me. And it did. I ended up in this little lake village that is one of the most spiritually connected places in the world. I felt it, it says it on the internet, it's true. <laughs> I met this person there who, you know, back to the mirrors concept, reflected back to me um, just this idea and feeling of pure love and pure acceptance of everybody, themselves, myself, themselves, everyone who, like exactly where they are, in that exact moment, and that was so powerful to me, and also really reminded me that I was still spontaneous and craved excitement and could invite that part of myself to come out at any time, that it was not dead. Um, so I really had kind of run out of energy for denying anything that needed to happen, and I came back from that trip in a massive puddle of confusion because for me, there's nothing like knowing I'm about to lose something to make me see how much I appreciate it and value it. And so to be sitting there knowing I need to change and let go of some of these things really was not a fun place I wanted to stand. So I started to kind of unravel this dream I'd been living so I could create space to make my own. And I started with my relationship. I have never been more grateful for another human being on this planet um, for the way that we were able to redefine how we love each other and untangle that part of our lives. Even four years later, we still show up as each other's biggest supporters and cheerleaders, and I hope that never changes, and I am so thankful for it. And the next thing, because I wanted freedom and adventure, was I had to look at all this goddamn shit that I'd accumulated over my life. And so I started just getting rid of everything. I burnt journals that I'd had for 20 years, 
it wasn't really that sad. It was kind of cathartic. Uh, and then I got rid of my grandma's china, which with that, but again, it was, I, I did it on purpose. With that, like I kind of got to get rid of like holding on to this tradition and formality that like does not connect to anything about who I am. And I think in doing that, her and I actually grew closer, right? She's dead, but I'm a little wooey. And I think that she was proud of me for not lugging around her expensive plates I was never gonna use. And then I got rid of a bunch of clothes that I'd had since high school. And with that, like all the memories and associations with whoever that person was then, and it cleared room for who I wanna be now and who I want to be in the future. I got rid of so much stuff that I am pretty sure that with the exception of my motorcycle and a large framed print, everything that I currently own fits in the back of my Jeep Wrangler. Is that classical? I, yeah, I'm really proud. Uh, and the next thing that I had to deal with was my portion of the house that we owned. I'm not sure that I handled this the best way. I honestly don't know that I handled any of this the best way, but I'm not somebody who really believes in looking back or wishing things had been different. So I sold my portion of the house that had been my home for over a decade, and I threw everything in the Jeep, and I drove out of Idaho. And I think I used to know why I wanted to leave Idaho. I think I wanted to leave myself and run away and become somebody completely new and pretend this person never existed. And this time when I left, I think I was actually trying to clear space and get some room to figure out who I really wanted to be and who I was inside and find a different way to listen to myself. Um, amusingly, I fell face first back into acting, which was kind of my fault. Don't move to LA to take a break from acting. <laughs> good job. I think it ended up being a good thing though because it brought a lot of clarity. I remember there was a day that I finally realized that I'd lost whatever connection it was that I had to whatever I was trying to prove by doing this. And I realized that I really wanted to work on these other parts of myself and that I didn't care whatever value I thought I was getting out of acting anymore, that I cared more about doing something else for a minute. And I decided to give myself the permission to you know, start traveling and study meditation. And in giving myself that permission, I just realized that was a really big turning point for me. And when that happened, I was sitting in this tiny little back house in Burbank with no ties to anything, you know, in the middle of this city that is more associated with possibility than probably any other city in the world. And I realized that I had completely created that moment. And then I realized that I had completely created every moment in my life, even the ones I didn't want. And that was honestly kind of empowering. And so I packed up the Jeep again and I came back to Idaho because I had an acting job here I had to get back for. Um, it was fun, I loved it. Um, anyway, and after I got here, I realized that there was a lot here that I was also really excited about and that there was nothing more spontaneous than deciding to start right back where you were. And in doing this, I you know, really got to look at the fact or you know, just know inside that I can create anything I want, I can change my mind, I can wipe the slate clean and start all over, and that I'm the one that needs to give myself permission to validate and move through whatever my truth is. And to me, that was the coolest thing that I will ever fucking own. <laughs> Katie, I think the most impressive thing is that you have a Jeep Wrangler. 
We all know what a Jeep Wrangler looks like. You can't even fit another human in the back. Uh. Intentionally. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Um, okay, let's get, we're gonna finish this off with a couple slammers, two, maybe three slammers. Let's get that slammer basket up here. Got dark so fast, you guys. Summer's dwindling. Do you feel it right now? Mm. Thank you. I'm just gonna pull two and then I'll, okay. Geoff R. Geoff R, like there's two Geoffs here. Geoff R. Geoff, Geoff R. Can't see what you look like cause it's too dark. Geoff R. I think there's someone coming. There's a shadow coming toward me. It's Geoff R. I have no idea where this is going to go. So this is going to be like somebody wandering in the desert with a forked stick looking for water. Um, <clears throat> but it'll be about ownership eventually. Two people touched on the house thing. And I moved over here a couple years ago now from Portland, Oregon, not Maine. Um, and um, I was an advertising guy in Portland. and. Um, I was, I was lucky enough, and because things were still cheap there, that in my 20s I was able to get a house in Portland. Um, and my budget was such that it was either gonna be a really shitty house in a nice neighborhood or a nice house in a shitty neighborhood. And I, I knew it was gonna be one of those things. And so I, I found a neighborhood that I really liked and a house that was just beat to hell. And um, it was cool, it was this craftsman, it was like a 1926 house. and. Um, but the whole first floor was covered with like this Carolina blue carpet that they'd had like four dogs and the dogs had pissed on the carpet so much that, that like I had, I pulled it up the first night I owned the house. I was in there. I was like, I can't sleep. There's the strange noises of a new house and all that. And, and I, I pulled the carpet up and the dogs had pissed on the, on the carpet so many times that I was able to stick a flathead screwdriver through into the basement. And um, I was like, okay, so this is, this is gonna be something. And it was one of those things where you know it's gonna be expensive, but you have no idea like the expense upon expense that it's gonna be. So that room needed a new floor eventually. Um, and, and what happened was originally, I, I knew enough that I knew that I didn't know how to do everything. Um, but I still had that, like, you know, I've got to be a man about this. And, you know, you, you have to, there, there are plot points in your life when you think you become a man. And, and one of them might be losing your virginity, but certainly another one is when you own a Sawzall. And... Um, <laughs> And so I was like, I, I got this reciprocating saw and I'm like, I felt like I could take over the world. And, and, and I, I reached a point after a few projects where I was like, I, I think if you're, if you're remodeling a house and you really, let's be honest, don't know your ass from third base, um, you should allow yourself one like three stooges level fuck up per project. <laughs> And, and I mean, so once it was the, I was like, I can install a toilet. I've seen the guys who install toilets. I can probably do that. And it turns out they actually know some things. And, I, and, and, 
those fittings are made of plastic now so that you have to you can't over tighten them you're supposed to hand tighten them so i'm like oh, i got a wrench i want it to be tight and it, of course it snaps and the the supply line for the toilet it turns out is really powerful so i'm like literally on my back this thing's spraying across the room and and um so that was one. Another one that you find is that, and some, some people in the audience have done this, when you hook up a dishwasher to a garbage disposal, there's this little disc in there that you have to knock out, or it won't drain. And I didn't do that, because I'd never installed a dishwasher or a garbage disposal. And so the whole kitchen floor is covered with suds. But, but without a doubt, the best one was I'm... I, I had paid these guys who actually knew what they were doing to do a lot of the remodeling. And, and then I thought, you know what, if I just do the demo before they come in, you know, it cuts a couple thousand dollars off the price, the whole thing. And, and it's Portland, so it's like downtown can be like full of like clowns chucking heroin needles, but the things that you get in trouble for are like not having a permit when you remodel your bathroom. Like there are people who drive around looking for dumpsters, and, and so I'm like, okay, all right, I will do this, and I will find a way to like spirit away all the shit from my project, like one carload at a time. And, and so it's the middle of winter, I, I'm, I'm in there and I think, all right, well, um, I know that part of the wall, there's all this lath behind the plaster, these old wood strips that have been there since like 1925. So of course they're gonna burn. So I start a small fire in the fireplace and I'm like, I'll just carry some of this stuff into the fireplace. And, and I'm in there and I'm pulling tile out and, and it, you know, it, it's, it's not catching like I thought it would. So I'm like, okay, I put a Duraflame log in there and I go in and I, and I go back and I, I get the sawzall. Now this is the, the funny thing is like when you're going down a wall that you know has pipes or electricity in it, you gotta be really careful. I'm pulling one piece off at a time. And then I get to the long wall, I'm like, no wires, no pipes, I can go crazy with the sawzall. And it, the blade felt funny at some point. I'm like, I'm running into something. And it was the only part of the house where the studs were sideways instead of deep. So I had half the depth that I thought I had. But I, I tear into it and I'm looking through this hole and I get a flashlight and I see this piece of canvas and I'm like, I'm having this Narnia moment. Like there's this room in the house that I didn't know. And then I recognize the canvas. I'm like, that's a jacket that I own. Oh shit, it's the closet in the next room. So meanwhile, I, I'm like, okay, the wood's not burning in the fireplace. I take like an armful of this lath and I throw it in the fireplace and I go back and I'm like one tile, two tiles. And I hear this sound that sounds like a train coming through the, uh, through the living room. And I go back out there and it's like a, it's like a fucking blast furnace. I, it, it hurts to walk into that room and I go outside and there are flames coming out of the chimney. And so I'm like, okay, I, I, I get like the largest pot I have in the kitchen and, I, and there's steam in the house. Um, but eventually, eventually I got the house 10 years later to the point where it was, it was much nicer than when I had gotten it. And, and I feel like, uh, the, the lesson that I learned about ownership is that whatever comical things you go through along the way is that you at least ownership is temporary. I mean, we're all going to die at some point and even things that you think you own are going to pass to somebody else. And you have to at least get it to a point where it's better than it was when you got it yourself. Um, and anyway, that's what I learned with home ownership. And, um, and that's all I have to say about ownership.
And did you guys see Geoff's shoes too? Nice shoes, Geoff. I'm glad that you said that because I, I was thinking about that with this theme that ownership is just this like concept that white people made up and brought to America and was like, we own this shit now. And native people were like, huh? And then a lot of other things, bad things happened. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, that's just shit that we made up and it's not, we're not taking any of it with us when we die. So um, uh, next story slammer of the night. Ah, I don't even know. <laughs> it's not Geoff, L. Um, <laughs> it's Arnivy? Arnivy. 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 Cool, cool name. Yeah, it's great. That's great. Hi, folks. This is my first story story night ever. Thanks. And I have to appreciate my friend Joe over there. She's like, I want to see you do a story. I'm like, okay. So here we go. What do a captain, a potato, and a guy named Chad all have in common? They're all cars that I used to own. Okay, we'll start with potato. Potato is my first car. I was a college student. I was like, I need a car for freedom to get around and do all the things that college people do, like volunteer and drive their friends around and do dumb stuff. So it was the summer of, I don't know, 2000 and whatever. And I'm with my mom and I see a Nissan in the parking lot and I was like, that's the one. She's like, that? That car? It looks like a mini minivan that has been like pummeled with hail or golf balls. And that's why I called it potato, because it was very lumpy. <laughs> but it was a trusty steed. It got me everywhere I wanted to go in college, um, complete with Ed Hardy seat covers. Now that's, that's fashion, it's fashion bugs. Um, I burned that thing to the ground. Literally, like driving on the highway, all of a sudden smoke is just billowing out of the, of the, the front, the hood. And I had to pull over on the highway and friends of mine were able to tow it with another friend's truck, like via rope, off the highway to a conveniently located Chevy dealership where it sat for probably three years before I did anything with it. Um, I finally got a call from the dealership and they're like, um, when are you gonna come get this car? And I was like, uh, never. I live in the state of Hawaii now. <laughs> um, I actually literally forgot about this car. Like, I didn't know what to do with it, I just, I abandoned it. And so, um, cars for kids, you can give your car to them for, I don't know what kids do with cars, but sure. <laughs> um, second car, the captain. So I'm, you know, graduated from college. I'm now like a free woman living in the city of Baltimore. Hooray. Um, and I tried to do the no car thing for a while and it was great. And then I was like, I need my car to get around. And funny thing about Baltimore, they give out parking tickets like, like candy to kids. They're just like, <laughs> We need some money to fix a lot of problems, so we're just gonna get it from parking tickets. I racked up over $700 in parking tickets in the city of Baltimore with my car, Captain. Um, I purchased this car from a shady, shady dealer in Baltimore, and I didn't have the gumption that I have now to just walk away. 
Um, so I bought it anyway. <laughs> um, after racking up $700 in parking tickets, I got into a car accident where I ran head in, head, like head on into a concrete wall uh, about two months after I bought the car. So in two months time, I racked up $700 in parking tickets and I wreck it and I didn't have gap insurance. So <laughs> the captain steered me wrong in the end very well. Um, so then the Hawaii piece, I, during COVID, moved to Hawaii because my brother lives there. And I was like, what are you doing with your apartment while you're on deployment, brother who is employed by the Navy? Uh, he was like, dude, it's prepaid. Like, come live here. It's going to be great. So I had owned a car in Kansas City where I was living. I've lived in a lot of places, so sorry. Got to track the map. Where's Carmen San Diego? I was living in uh, Kansas City, and I owned a car that I called Chad. And he was a Toyota Avalon with wood trim on the inside. And there's nothing like driving in a Toyota Avalon. If you've never done it, I highly suggest specifically like a 2002 where it's like you're driving like in a boat like yes where you just feel like you're in a cloud like Chad's got me like he's a reliable guy you know um, but I was moving to Hawaii so I had to get rid of the car and I got the car for $600 from a friend's uncle who it had been sitting in his garage for like years and I was like, what am I gonna do with this car? Like, I need to sell it. So I desperately put out an ad on Craigslist, was like, moving overseas, need car, sell fast. And I had one person come to look at the car. Meanwhile, I'd already bought the plane ticket. I was like, I was leaving in like a T minus 10 days and I was like panicking all of a sudden. Um, and this guy shows up and he's like, I need this car for my, my brother who has just moved in and he's struggling with a drug problem, and I was like, great, I'll cut you a deal, $2,000. <laughs> he bought it for $2,000. <laughs> I was really impressed with myself. Um, sad that it was on the back of someone who was struggling with an addiction, but as, <laughs> as a poor person, I was like, I need this money to satisfy my life in Hawaii. So I sold the car for $2,000, and as he's riding away in my, in Chad, having this ride of his dreamed life, I realized like all of my CDs that I've ever had in life are in the console and they're all marked like, to my, my girlfriend, Renvi, and they're all like really bad rap songs from like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, but now, how did I end up in Idaho? Um, I met a guy in Hawaii, and he got a job here, and I moved here, and I decided I'm not gonna own a car because my boyfriend owns one. <laughs> and that's my story on ownership, so you're welcome to not owning a car. If you were here last month, you know that I moved to Idaho also because I um, met a guy and that didn't work out for me. So good luck um, <laughs> with that. <laughs> Should we do one more? You guys have any? Okay, cool. Let's bring the slammer basket up. We'll do one more. Woo! Thank you, Darcy. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
Okay. Sarah John. Sarah John, Sarah John. I forgot to mention, um, if you are a Slammer, make sure you visit the Slammer booth and sign a release for our podcast. So if you have Slam tonight, or actually if you've also been a feature teller, please go ahead and sign the release. All right, Sarah. Hi. Um, I have been to Story Story Night um, multiple times, and I have told stories a few times. Um, I have never told a a vulnerable story that I didn't find funny later in life. (laughs) And um, so I think vulnerable stories, yes, but um, ones that I found funny because enough time had passed. But um, one time I heard Beth um, at a story story night talking about like telling a story that scares you. And um, that's what I'm gonna do tonight. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I feel like I owe the audience an apology because it is like a vulnerable story, but it is what comes to mind. When I think about ownership, um, I don't think about a house. I don't think about the clothes or the shoes that I'm wearing. Um, I think about the ownership of my physical body. And I was not going to cry when I told this story, but um, but I think that in the American dream, as many people have brought up tonight, there's this underlying theme that we are dealing with right now, um, where we don't have ownership over our bodies if we are women. And so I'm gonna tell a story that I think the only person in the audience that knows this, and I do have have friends in the audience, um, but I think only one person, and I think actually only maybe two people besides my doctor know this story too, but um, I had an experience some years ago where I was in a really like toxic relationship. And um, if you've heard me tell stories at Story Story Night before, (laughs) then you might think this is just the story of my life, (laughs) just toxic relationships. But that's not entirely true. Um, But at one point in this relationship, I ended up pregnant. And I can remember um, calling on one of my best friends. I have this really wonderful group of friends called the Gays and Dolls, and I'm a doll, and they're the gays. <laughs> and, um, and this friend was, is in the audience, um, Jimmy, one of my best friends, and I explained to him like, what I was going through in my life, and that like, I did not want to have this baby. I did not want to have this baby with this other human. I didn't want to be tied to him forever. Um, or even just for 18 years. (laughs) So um, Jimmy's response was really special to me because I'm not sure that he would remember it, but I remember it really clearly. And it was just quite simply, um, if you choose to have this baby, it will be loved by all of your friends. You will, it will want for nothing. And you will feel very supported. If you choose not to have this baby, I too support you 100%. 
And everybody, I think, needs a friend like Jimmy to share that with, to remind you that it's your choice. And you own your body. You get to make that decision. And now we live in a world where people are trying to take that away from us. And lately, I've thought a lot about this instance in my life because um, I have a, a younger sister who's gone through years and years and years of in vitro and finally has gotten pregnant. And um, I just think about, I have analyzed in my own mind whether it's selfish that I was able to get pregnant and I chose not to have a baby. Um, where somebody else can want one so badly, and it's such a struggle. And in the end, I think that what I have come to terms with is that um, I owned my decision, and it was completely right for me. So I stand in front of you really vulnerably to say like that I do think that this is something that we don't talk enough about or normalize potentially enough, and that it's... Um, it is like we chant at women's marches, my body and my choice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise. Our theme song was composed by Ned Evett. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Please rate and review this podcast to help other story lovers find us. Thanks to host Beth Norton and guest musician Gene Cardenio. Support this podcast by texting STORYPOD to 44321. Find out how to participate in our live show and even how to be a storyteller at www.storystorynight.org or visit us on Facebook. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.